Good morning. My name is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the members here at River Oaks. And I'd like to invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 3. So we have officially made it through two chapters of Ephesians. So congratulations. It's been good to soak in the gospel grace in those two chapters. Looking forward to four more. Verse 1 of chapter 3 begins with, For this reason. And if you ask, for what reason is that, Paul? It's because of everything he's already said in chapters 1 and 2, and specifically at the very end. So let's begin reading in chapter 2, verse 19. But our passage this morning is chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the words of God. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And here's our text for this morning. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. A good story, whether it's found in film or in a novel, a good story contains several key elements. A gripping plot, rich character development, a tense conflict, and a satisfying resolution. And sometimes they contain one of my favorite elements, which is the plot twist. We've all experienced one. You're watching the movie, you're reading the book, you think you know what's going on, and then you get hit by the plot twist. Whether it's Darth Vader revealing that he is Luke's father in Star Wars, or whether it's Bruce Willis's character being dead the whole time in The Sixth Sense, and these movies are all decades old, <laughs> so don't tell me, I was about to go watch it after church, you spoiled it for me, you've had a while. A good plot twist changes our perspective and makes us rethink what we thought we knew. So what do you do next after you hit the plot twist? You go and you, you watch that movie again. And when you do that, on the second viewing, you start noticing things that you didn't notice before, little hints and clues that completely make sense now that you know the end of the story. Paul in Ephesians 3, he's telling us that the Bible is written the same way. God wrote a really good story. <coughs> Excuse me. And with the coming of Christ into the world, God has pulled the ultimate plot twist that was really just there all along. 
This is what he calls the mystery of Christ in verse 4. But this mystery, it's not some profound doctrine that he just likes to think about in his armchair. No, this mystery absolutely changed Paul's life. It gave him a mission to a lost and dying world. So I believe our passage this morning could be summarized like this. God's mystery throughout the word motivates us for God's mission throughout the world. God's mystery throughout the word motivates us for God's mission throughout the world. So we'll start with looking at the mystery and then move on to the mission. So, God's mystery throughout the word, throughout the scriptures. Let's read verses 4 and 5 again of chapter 3. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. That's what we're going to try to do, perceive that insight. This mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul's saying a mystery has been made known to him. This word mystery, it's used three times in this passage. It's very important to Paul. But he's not using the word mystery the way we normally think about a mystery. We think about detectives, mystery novels, Sherlock Holmes. But for Paul, all a mystery meant was a secret. It was something that was once unknown, but has now been made known. Something that was hidden, but it's been brought out in the open. It's been brought out into the light. Augustine put it well. St. Augustine, when he was talking about the Old and the New Testaments. He said, in the Old, the New is concealed. And in the New, the Old is revealed. So Paul, he's not here to give us anything new, as if God had a change of plans. No, he's here to clarify what God has been up to all along. It's like a picture, but the picture's blurry. It's out of focus. You can, you can sort of make out what you're looking at, but, but it's not clear. Once the lens comes into focus, however, you can see the details. You can see the picture. It makes sense. You're not looking at anything new. You're looking at the same picture with an increased clarity. And in verse 6, Paul brings the biblical lens into focus and tells us exactly what this mystery is. Is. Let's read verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles, that is those who are not Jews, those who are outside of Israel, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is what Paul's been saying all throughout chapters 1 and 2 of this great epistle. That Jews and Gentiles, through faith in Jesus Christ, are made into one new people in Christ Jesus. That the gospel, it's not just going to the Jews, but it's going to the nations. And this is, God, this is good news for us, because most of us in this room are Gentiles. At least, I think. 
Now, this mystery wasn't clear in the past. It was concealed in the Old Testament, but now it has been made known. It's been revealed. And for a first century Jew like Paul, a good boy reading his Hebrew Bible, this would have been like viewing an M. Night Shyamalan movie for the first time. It looked like the Lord was dealing solely with Israel, like all the other pagan nations were excluded from God's redemptive plan. But now that he's met Jesus, everything's changed. He's hit the plot twist. The scales have fallen off his eyes, and he can go back through the Old Testament. He can do a rewatch, and he starts seeing things that were always just hiding in plain sight. So I want us to take a tour of the Bible, to walk down the Emmaus Road and to look at God's mystery from Genesis to Revelation, to look at God's unfolding plan. So are you ready? All right, let's go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from one man, from one blood, he created all the nations of the earth. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam was commissioned to fill the earth with image bearers of God who would glorify and enjoy him forever. Adam failed his test. He sinned against God. He transgressed the covenant. And God's good world began spiraling out of control until we reach Babel in Genesis 11. In their pride and in their vanity... Mankind built a tower that would reach to the heavens, that would bring glory to their name rather than their makers. So God came down and in judgment scattered the people and confused their speech. This was the origin of all different languages, nations, tribes, peoples, cultures. All division and discord and strife find their root in Babel's revolt. But God who is sovereign, had a plan. One chapter later, in Genesis 12, the Lord called a man named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he gave him great and very precious promises, namely, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him and through his seed, which we know from Genesis 3 is Christ himself. The nations that were just cursed and scattered will one day be blessed and reunified through the coming Messiah. Now, we don't see much of this worldwide blessing for a while. We see little hints of it. We see Joseph sold as a slave, sent to prison, and finally exalted to prime minister of Egypt, where he supernaturally saves the world. He prepares for a famine so that the other nations don't starve to death. He's a blessing to the families of the earth. After 400 years of slavery, when Yahweh is saving his people out of Egyptian slavery. In Exodus 12, when they're leaving, it says that it wasn't just Israel making their exodus. It says a mixed multitude went with them. That is, there were Egyptians who saw the power and the judgment and the mercy of God and decided to leave. When the Israelites were journeying in the wilderness on their way out of Egypt and into the promised land, the Lord said this in Numbers 14, 21. The whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. The whole earth. 
The prophet Habakkuk would echo this in his prophecy when he said, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. That is, totally. God's plan was never limited to a 50 by 200 mile piece of real estate in the Middle East. He was always aiming for the whole earth to know him and glorify his name. When Moses presents God's law to the people, he says that it's not just for them, but it's actually meant to attract the other nations around them to the one true God. In Deuteronomy 4, he says, Keep them and do them, that is God's commands, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord is to us? And that is exactly what Isaiah meant when he said that Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49.6. And throughout the history of Israel, we see several glimpses of Gentile redemption and inclusion. We see Rahab, the pagan prostitute of Jericho, saved from judgment and welcomed into the covenant community. We see Ruth, the Moabitess, commit herself to the God of Israel and even become a matriarch in the messianic line itself. We see Naaman, a military leader, an enemy of God, and a leper come and be cleansed according to the word of Elisha. And we even see the city of Nineveh, the capital of the evil empire who raged against God and his people. We even see that vile, vile city saved and forgiven and granted revival, much to the prophet Jonah's chagrin. And while we see glimpses in the law and the histories, things start accelerating in the Psalms and the prophets. Here's just a sample. Psalm 117.1, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Psalm 86.9, all the nations you have made, will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. Psalm 22. Now remember, our Lord quoted the first verse of this psalm in his agony on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But farther along in the psalm, in verses 27 and 28, he says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. If our Lord fulfilled the first half of this psalm in his sufferings, he will fulfill the last half in his exaltation. And Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations on earth. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. And into the prophets, just read Isaiah and you'll see this everywhere. Isaiah chapter 2, he says, The mountain of the Lord will be exalted above all mountains and the nations will stream into it. Chapter 9, he says of Christ, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Christ's kingdom 
will increase throughout this world, not just in Israel. And then in chapter 19, verses 24 and 25, we hear these astonishing words. In that day, in the day of the Messiah, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be my Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. It's astounding. God is saying that Israel's historic enemy, Egypt, their present enemy, Assyria, and Israel itself will all be equally part of God's people. In chapter 7 of his prophecy, Daniel sees one, like a son of man, coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. It's a picture of the ascension and coronation of Christ. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. I think we know why Jesus liked the title, the Son of Man. And then the Old Testament ends with these words from the prophet Malachi in chapter 1. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then he says, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And thus ends the Old Testament scriptures. After 400 years of silence, the long-awaited Messiah, the promised deliverer, arrived. When he was a child, he was worshipped not by the high priests, by the religious authorities. He was worshipped by pagan astrologers. When the Christ child was brought to be dedicated in the temple, we meet someone who I think is one of the most important yet neglected figures in all of Scripture, Simeon. This man who we meet in Luke 2 stands as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New. And when he lays eyes on Jesus, he exclaims, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Luke 2, 31 and 32. The ancient promise to Abraham was beginning to unfold. And it would continue to unfold as the Lord Jesus grew and began to minister, as he healed, taught, loved, and forgave sinners. And we see it ultimately at the cross. Our Lord is put on a false trial by who? Jews and Gentiles. By Herod and Pontius Pilate. He's crucified. He's put on the cross, and he became sin who knew no sin, and the holy, righteous, unmitigated wrath of God fell down upon him. But not just for the sins of one people, not just for the sins of the Jewish nation, He died for the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, for the sins of the whole world. He died for his sheep that are scattered abroad. And at this time, the only one to recognize him, it was not the high priest, it was not the Pharisees, not even his disciples. It was a Roman centurion, a heathen soldier who looked at Jesus on the cross and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And he cried out, it is finished, and he gave up his breath and was buried. Three days later, our Lord rose from the dead, the conquering king, never to taste death again. At the climax of this gospel story, our Lord said these words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And after our Lord ascends to heaven and sits down at God's right hand, he sends the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, we see the reverse of Genesis 11. At Pentecost, we see the undoing of Babel. When men from every nation under heaven hear the good news in their own language and ultimately 3,000 people were saved. And that gospel fire, it continued to burn throughout the book of Acts and through the epistles as the kingdom advanced into the continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe. Jesus has bound Satan from deceiving the nations. The strong man is bound and we are plundering his house. The kingdom of light is overcoming the kingdom of darkness and he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it even to the ends of the earth. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, we hear the crescendo to this great scriptural symphony. Revelation 7 verses 9 through 10. I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit for this great revelation. My friends, I want you to know that the goal of all human history is the global glorification and worldwide worship of the Lamb of God. Christ will redeem his international multi-ethnic bride. From Genesis to Revelation, God's purpose has always been the redemption of one united people, one new humanity made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Now, people have always loved tracing their family trees. We like discovering our heritage. Maybe you've used something like Ancestry.com, gone and traced your ancestry. And many of you might be like me and found that there is no one interesting in your family history. But do you realize that if you are in Christ, you are a member of Abraham's family. That you have been grafted into the olive tree of Israel. 
that the Old Testament stories, when you read them, that is your family lineage, that the covenants of promise have been given to you. That's good news, my friends. And that is God's mystery throughout the word. But that motivates us for God's mission throughout the world. Let's read chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 1, 2, and 3 again. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. This revelation of God absolutely changed Paul's life. It even sent him to prison. He said, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. When the risen Christ confronted and converted him on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus said that Paul was a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, and carry it he did. He became a steward, a manager entrusted with the message of God's grace. And Paul gave everything for God's mission. He gave his time, his money, his skills, his comfort, his reputation, his health, and ultimately his life. So for those of us who have seen God's purpose for the nations, how shall we respond? For some of you, it may be full-time missions, maybe moving overseas to bring the gospel to an unreached place or people. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been prompting you to think about missionary work overseas. And if that's the case, praise God. Praise God. Come and talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders. We would love to pray for you, for God's wisdom and guidance to talk with you through that. But all of us are not going to be called to move overseas. Some will, but not all will. But the great commission, the command to make disciples of all nations, that applies at home and abroad. And it's binding on all of us. We have a mission. And we are at the ends of the earth now. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. We often think, this is my Jerusalem, you know, Maribel, maybe Judea, our Judea is Tennessee, and it kind of goes out and out. No, Jerusalem is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria have been reached. You can read about it in the book of Acts. We are at the ends of the earth. We are in the final stage of this mission, and there is still work to do around us. In Romans 10, Paul asks these questions. He says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? We need people to go. We need people to go and preach. But then he says, but how are those people to preach unless they're sent? We need goers and we need senders. We need people to go preach the gospel in other countries. And we need people to help them get there and to support them and encourage them. As John Piper said, there are three options 
when it comes to missions. Go, send, or disobey. We can go, we can help those who go, or we can disobey. We have to be involved. One way to do that is to pray. Our brothers and sisters who are proclaiming the gospel in hostile territory, they desperately need your prayers. If you want to help, get on your knees and pray. Pray that God would do a great and glorious thing among the nations. I can tell you from praying for missionaries for years now, I have seen answers to prayer that are marvelous. And Paul, at the end of this book, in chapter 6, he says, pray for me. He's telling the church to pray for him, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Maybe it's giving. We must use the resources the Lord has given us to glorify his name. And we must use them for his mission. Paul wrote to the Philippian church in chapter 4 of that epistle about their partnership, their fellowship in the gospel. He said, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That can be such a fragrant offering to the Lord. Maybe it's going on one of the short-term mission trips that we do. Maybe a trip to Kenya that we often do. Maybe you need to pray about your involvement there, how you could help, how you could serve. Get to know those in our body who are on the front lines. We have people here from TEAM, people who are with World Orphans, who are with Wares Valley Ranch and many others. Get to know them, be an encouragement to them and their ministry. If you can, get involved with the local outreach that we do here in Blount County. We have so many opportunities from jail ministry, assisted living ministry, the Pregnancy Resource Center, an upcoming Isaiah 117 house. It might be taking in children through foster care or through safe families, as so many of you already do. It might be praying about your involvement in the future church plan. On the 17th and the 18th of this month, we have discipleship training. Come, take the time to be equipped to make disciples wherever you are. And for most of us, if not all of us, it's having the boldness to share the gospel with our neighbors, co-workers, our loved ones. But no matter how we get involved, that's just a sample. We must get involved. And when we do, we need to expect trials. Remember, Paul is writing this from prison. But that's not all. In 2 Corinthians 11, he gives us a list of his sufferings. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. These are sufferings that Paul could have avoided. He could have stayed home, but he didn't. He got involved and he paid the price and he counted the cost for the glory of his Savior. This is also going to mean recovering the lost virtue of courage. Paul, he knew that he was going into hostile territory. And for many of us, they can still be around us and it will grow more hostile. We need to have the courage to stand up and speak the truth of Christ no matter what happens to us because we have been moved by this vision of what God is doing in redeeming a people for himself. He is sovereign. His gospel will succeed. So we can have courage. We can pray for boldness to tell others about the glory of the Lord Jesus. We must be willing to sacrifice our time, our comfort, and our reputations so that we can say with Paul in Acts 20, verse 24, I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Maybe finish our course. Well, as we come to this communion table, we need to remember that Christ has prepared this table for all peoples. Throughout the Gospels, it was very common for people to be astonished and amazed at what Jesus did. They were marveling at what he did. They were amazed. But very few times does it say that Jesus was amazed, that Jesus marveled. But one of the situations was in Matthew 8, when a Roman centurion, the last person you would think would be accepted by Jesus, when a Roman centurion came to him, requesting that his servant be healed. And he acknowledged Jesus' authority and he relied on Jesus' mercy. And this is how Jesus responded to him. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This covenant meal is a glimpse and a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where people from every tribe and tongue will feast, where people from north and south, from east and west, will eat at the king's table and be satisfied in their Savior. So may the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have revealed this mystery to us. May it captivate us. Holy Spirit, 
you are ever at work lifting up and exalting the Lord Jesus throughout the earth. Let us be a part of it, Lord. Let us as a community, as River Oaks Community Church, help us to be a light to the nations and help us as individuals, Lord. Help us to have such a love for you and such a love for the lost that we are bold in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. Lord, please help us, change us, glorify your great name through us. So we say glory be to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen.